according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, our passage is Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, the parallel text comes out of Mark chapter 10. There's also a reference in Luke 16 and, uh, oh, verse 18, I think. And uh, we may hit that later today. We're dealing with the doctrine of divorce. This is uh, the second time that the Lord has come to this subject, or possibly the third time the Lord has come to this subject. Here, though, we find that, once again, it is a test. It is a um, snare for his downfall. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him. And remember, this is the nature. It's not God's testing where it is designed for our approval. It is actually the adversary's temptations that are designed for our downfall. And it's critical that we understand the distinctions there. And I don't think anyone here today has confusion on that. They came testing him and asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And this is the loaded question because this is this has all of the politics uh, in play. And so uh, it's not necessarily a theological question. The theological question is simply the venue in which they can try to snare him into a political debate, a, an in-house debate as it is within the Pharisee party itself. Uh, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. And that's what we started with a week ago and what I want to continue on here today. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer so that we can prepare our hearts for truth and then uh, we'll proceed to our study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, you are the God of truth and we thank you for that. And not only are you intrinsically the source of truth and the revealer of truth. Father, you make that truth available for each one of us and we can rightly divide the word of truth. By your grace, Father, we can study to show ourselves approved. So we thank you for this opportunity one more time here today. We didn't earn it, didn't deserve it, but uh, you provided us the uh, ability to be here, health, finances, transportation. Father, uh, you've allowed us to be here and we want to redeem this opportunity in your will, for your good pleasure, for the glory of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, as we study this doctrine, help uh, to make it very real to each one of us, to identify what your purpose is for marriage, your, uh, your hatred for divorce, um, and yet the principles that we must understand so that we do not fall for false teaching and uh, find ourselves um, on the wrong side of, of your will in these matters. So, Father, open our eyes. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. There's quite a bit on divorce that's out there in uh, the literature and uh, in the Bible study materials, stuff that is uh, quite excellent and stuff that is quite frightening. Uh, and what makes it frightening is that it has the appearance of being uh, sound or grounded in the text of God's Word. And we're going to show you how the verses that are used are not used properly in the false approaches to this doctrine. And, and that should be... Uh, that should be clear as well as we work our way through here. All right. Well, we've covered already main point one. Thank you for the uh, dimming of the uh, window shades. That's <laughs> useful. Let there be dark, right? <laughs> Pharisee questions. Normally, they were designed to trap the Lord. In this instance, we have one division of Pharisees hoping to use the Lord to resolve their in-house debate. 
concerning the divorce. And that's what this is. It's an in-house debate. The school of Shammai was the stricter school in this regard. The school of Hillel uh, had a looser understanding of the issues. Uh, it's not fair to say that one was conservative, the other was liberal. They're both conservative. Any Pharisee branch you're looking at, it's not unfair to call any of them liberal in the sense. But they were both uh, being accurate to the text so far as they chose to emphasize one particular term. And so the school of Shammai taught that a man could only divorce his wife for a sexual offense. But the school of Hillel permitted divorce for almost any reason at all. And one that they specifically enumerated was uh, burning dinner. All right. And, uh, you know, show me a wife that hadn't done that, you know, uh, as far as that goes. The actual people involved uh, were both dead by the point of time that this uh, debate was taking place, although Shammai was only very recently dead, having passed away in 30 A.D. So, uh, And even Hillel in 20 A.D., that's not that long ago. We're talking 33 A.D. at this point for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So it's very likely that the Pharisees involved in this debate knew them personally, Shammai clearly, and then possibly even Hillel was only... 13 years previously. So uh, the, these great rabbis and their uh, memorial, their remembrance was still very vivid in the minds of these folks. I put up here a little bit out of the Mishnah. And, and they both, see here's the key, they both used Deuteronomy 24 for their uh, authority. The house of Shammai say a man should divorce his wife only because she has found, he has found grounds for it in unchastity, since it is said because he has found in her indecency in anything. And, and what they did was they chose to lock in on that term indecency in the Hebrew text. They chose to lock in on that and they said this is the grounds. This is the valid criteria. Uh, but notice the expression indecency in anything. They chose to stress the indecency part. Well, the house of Hillel says, even if she spoiled his dish, since it is said because he has found in her indecency in anything. Okay. And they highlight the in anything. So both groups are using scripture to validate their position. But one school is highlighting the indecency term to say that's the only grounds. The other group is highlighting that, well, saying, wait a minute, it says in anything so let's not limit it to sexual indecency. There could be, um, you know, what would you call cooking indecency? There could be <laughs> comestible indecency or of some sort. Any indecency. All right. And then even uh, an expansion upon Hillel then would be Rabbi Akiba, who says even if he has found someone else prettier than she. All right. That's grounds for divorce. Something better comes along. Uh, since, and again, Scripture, it shall be if she finds no favor in his eyes. Okay, That's actually a clause that comes before the two phrases that Hillel and Shammai were working on. But if it shall be, she finds no favor in his eyes. And so Rabbi Akiba highlighted, keyed in on the fact, he says, you know what, the text here is emphasizing the eyes, the visual. Men are visual, this seems to be the circumstance, so this is how... Uh, this is how they justified um, divorce. Again, indecency in anything, no, no longer pleasing in my eyes. So Moses is uh, granting us this, uh, this permission. All right. Now, no, no, I don't hold any of these, all right? <laughs> this is, these are all rabbinic traditions uh, in, uh, in that. 
I hold to the New Testament teaching as per the Lord and as per Paul. So what does Jesus do here? So here's the debate. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And if he agrees, if he goes with a more uh, loose understanding of Hillel, then uh, Shammai will uh, view him as an adversary. If he, uh, if he comes down on Shammai's side, which he almost starts to in uh, verse um, 9, then, uh, then the school of Hillel will have reason to view him as an adversary. And it doesn't really matter, truly, because they, they, both groups want him dead. The Pharisees want him dead. But this is a, uh, a political maneuver in, uh, just before his death to try to get some advantage after his death. All right? Because once he is executed as a heretic, then whichever side can point the finger and say, he agreed with you, is going to have an advantage over that side. See, because he's going to be a condemned heretic. He's going to be having been put to death as a false Christ. He's going to they're successfully going to uh, remove him as a false Christ. And so if the school of Hillel can show that he was sympathetic with the school of Shammai, well, then they're going to have the upper hand, aren't they? Or vice versa, if the school of Shammai can find that he had more in common with the school of Hillel, then they will have the upper hand once he's successfully executed. And they can, it's, it's called guilt by association. They can say, well, look, you know, you, you had a lot of agreement with this murderer or with this heretic that we put to death. That doesn't speak well for your theology. It doesn't speak well for your, uh, for your opinions on, on these different areas. In any event, I, I find the whole exercise here rather interesting. The Lord doesn't take it. He doesn't choose sides. and He's not on Shammai's side. He's not on Hillel's side. He's on God's side. He's on the side of Scripture. He's on the side of Scripture. And you and I can employ this every time. If, if you find yourself in the middle of a, of a Calvinist or an Arminian on, on either side of you, then just step out of that and say, I'm not choosing those sides. I'm on Scripture's side. What does the Scripture say? And... Um, Take it from there. So he goes back to Genesis. Specifically, uh, a a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You know how much doctrine is in that one little verse? It's quoted in Genesis 2, or it's originally stated in Genesis 2, verse 24. It's quoted here. There's a whole outline we can give you. And uh, this is a wonderful outline for in the beginning and how marriage was before the fall. Now, previously, Jesus had referenced Deuteronomy 24. This was back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He had delivered a message pertaining to marriage after the fall. And, and he taught about divorce in Matthew chapter 5, specifically describing the adultery or the fornication parameters for uh, permissible divorce. That was previously. Now, they keep bringing it up again. Now, he's going back to it again. So, on this occasion, rather than repeat everything he said the last time, although he will, uh, he, he goes ahead now and he, and he takes it back to before the fall. Takes it back to the beginning. What did God design marriage for? And, and, and that's a wonderful uh, tool. Not just for debates. This isn't about winning arguments. But about understanding what the scripture says about something. Take it back to its origin. Take it back to its genesis. Take it back to God's purpose for it. I think uh, part of LaRosa's training today, we were discussing Israel and the church and the sadness of even good men that end up blending Israel and the church or find the church is replacing Israel and doing all kinds of things with it. And 
where you do yourself a huge favor is go back to its founding, go back to its purpose. What is Israel? What is the, What are they designed to do? What is the church? What is the church designed to do? And when you go back to origins and purpose and function and nature, uh, and you find too many differences rather than similarities, then you have to say, you know what? They can't be the same. They've got to be different. And the church doesn't replace Israel because Israel's destiny is eternal. So God's not done with Israel and things of that nature. Well, same thing with marriage. The Lord here is taking it back to the beginning, taking it back to Genesis. What was the original design? Now, that's good. You've got to do that. But you still also at the same time can't ignore the reality of the fall. You can't ignore the reality of where we are in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. If you limit your doctrine of marriage to Edenic principles... You're going to have a horrible doctrine of marriage. And everyone you teach that doctrine to is trying to live according to Edenic principles is going to is going to suffer because the, the doctrine is flawed. We're not in the Edenic age. All right. <laughs> Never mind. I'll get, I'll get in trouble if I pursue that thought anymore. We're not in the Edenic age. We're not in the age of innocence. We're not in the in the, you know, walking around naked in the garden routine. All right. Could be some husbands wouldn't mind that. But the, the point being, we're not in the age of innocence. We're not in the Garden of Eden. We're in the church age, the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. So I think the Lord is brilliant in what he's doing here. He goes back to before the fall. He states those principles. And then before he wraps up his message, he does uh, restate what he said in chapter five. He does include the uh, the nature of fornication. All right. And and the. The uh, causation, the fornication destroys a marriage. Uh, fornication destroys the unity that uh, that marriage is designed to promote. All right. Am I shifting too much? Lillian can't see me. I keep moving around that post there. Okay. <laughs> the new building won't have a post there. Won't that be great? All right. So if you were here last week, then you already had this outline. Uh, humanity was biologically designed for male-female partnership. Humanity was psychologically designed for father-mother-child raising. Humanity was generationally designed for leaving and cleaving. The actual uh, necessity and design for a, a uh, young adult to step out and enter into their own uh, generational accountability. It's a wonderful concept. Generational accountability. And that's the process of leaving and cleaving. Cleaving precedes copulation. The lifelong commitment uh, before the Lord as one man, one woman in fulfillment of the plan of God um, precedes the one flesh relationship. They shall be joined to one another and the two shall become one flesh. Also, the fifth point where we ran out of time, intercourse is both an outer man and an inner man activity. The souls are involved in the marital relationship. Souls are involved, not just bodies. And if all, you, if all we do is emphasize the physical or talk about the, uh, the, the biological activity that takes place there, then we're doing a grave disservice to the actual doctrine. All right, which brings us now to where we ran out of time. And I didn't want to just rush through it, but main point, let's go the right way here. Wow, my left click is going backwards. How does my left click go backwards? All right, point C now. The joining of two into one is something that God himself accomplishes. It's stated that way in Genesis. It's, sta or it's stated that way. 
It's not stated how it happens in Genesis, but in Matthew, it very clearly says God has joined together. God did it. All right. Genesis, it just says the two shall become one flesh. And it does not stipulate the agent or uh, the, the verb. It just, okay, the man leaves his father and mother, the two join, uh, is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. But in Matthew, we're told, so then, what God has joined together, let no man separate, let no man part asunder. And so here we find clearly that God is the active agent. God is the subject of the verb. The joining of two into one is something that God himself accomplishes. So we have a directive will of God statement then. The directive will of God then is for man to not divide one into two. God took two and made one out of it. And the imperative, the prohibition, the explicit statement of the declarative will of God here, let no man or let no one part asunder. Again, that's Matthew chapter 19 and verse 6. What therefore God has joined together, let no one part asunder or separate. Now, there's a lot of teaching on this too, or or there's a lot of writing on this that speculates a lot, that that describes a lot, that that actually views um, this as an actual, even a, a miraculous thing that God does when he knits souls together. When, when the husband and wife come together, that he actually knits those souls together. And, and there's certainly a lot to think about and consider how does this happen. <clears throat> Is it an active thing that God accomplishes at that point of, of consummation? Or... Um, is that something God does even prior to the ceremony itself as the man and woman are, are coming together in their, in their uh, developed love with one another and their developed uh, commitment to one another? See, And I think it's still an open question worthy of additional um, study, worthy of additional Scripture evaluation. All right? And we see this. Uh, we, we, we see this between uh, Shechem and, and Dinah in that horrible chapter in Genesis 34. We see it in other places as well. Uh, we see the principles in First Peter that the man and the woman are heirs together, the grace of life. And that has a component to this whole study. All right. But souls being knit together. There's even an application of it with David and Jonathan in, uh, in their capacity of, of intimacy before the Lord that kills me when the, the homosexuals try to take it and twist it into some blasphemous thing about David and Jonathan. Have you ever read that? But, but they had a soul love for Jesus Christ that combined them together. And David said, you know, your love is better than the love of women at that point. And far from being a validation from homosexuality, what I think it really teaches is that David destroyed his own soul through polygamy. David destroyed his own soul through uh, other other things where he didn't have the capacity to have until, you know, you look at what the deal was there with Bathsheba and all the other wives and women that he had and so forth. Um, that's that's a whole study on its own. In any event, here's the imperative: what God has joined together. <clears throat> so if all we had was Genesis, we would say, okay, man leaves his father and mother, woman leaves her father and mother, they get married, they're joined together, and they become one. 
All right. They're joined together and they become one. Remember, the joined together is the commitment that they have because they're no longer under the, the parental bond. Okay. They're no longer under the parental bond. And that parental bond is for their training, for their um, bringing up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, for their spiritual protection. All right. That's gone. They're out from under the umbrella of parental shepherding and spiritual protection. They now stand in their own generation as a protective measure for the offspring that God's going to bless them with. See, at that point. So uh, the joining to one another means that they have this commitment, this commitment to walk together as one man and one woman in Christ. Now, there's a principle here. And, And before I move on to Main point three, I'm going to give you a principle because and to me, this is where some damaging teaching comes in in um, some of the flawed approaches to the doctrine of divorce. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Here's your principle. Do not does not equal cannot. Okay, do not does not equal cannot. And if you've never been exposed to this, let me just spell it out for you here in a few moments, okay? Because the flawed, unbiblical divorce teaching that's out there, and it's out there in evangelical circles, is that divorce is never permitted under any circumstance. And that uh, because of that, and because actually divorce is impossible under any circumstance, because God has joined them together. And that even if you sin... And divorce your spouse. In the eyes of God, you're still married. In the eyes of God. And they get very pious in this regard. You're still married. So that a remarriage then is what? It's adultery. Oh, it's horrid. Because in the eyes of God, you're still married. You cannot separate what God has joined together. And typically they'll combine it with... um, Oh, you know, other verses that highlight sovereignty and things of that nature that, you know, who can thwart God and things like that. And so they they redefine this verse to say that do not means cannot, that it is impossible. And what they end up doing is they end up taking Paul's doctrine of 1 Corinthians 7, reading it back into this one and so it's a horrible hermeneutic to use a later passage to interpret this one or to control this one, see, and not to accept the fact that the later one actually is built on this one. You need this one to help understand that one. You can't flip it around. So here's the principle. It does not equal cannot, and, and it's impossible. Language doesn't allow for that. Greek, Hebrew, English, Swahili, I don't care. Language does not allow for this concept, and I'll show you why. Because the command actually admits that it's a possibility. The, the, the prohibition, do not, admits can is a possibility. And it's a possibility that must not or ought not be realized. All right. It's, and I'm going to just walk through these scriptures here, and then I think it probably will illustrate itself. We won't have to illustrate it, but God is not stupid. Can we agree to that? God is not foolish. There is never a command that God issues that's impossible to be obeyed. 
There's never a prohibition that God issues that's impossible to be done. All right. Ever. From Genesis to Revelation. So, and, and I limited this. There's hundreds of more illustrations, but I limited the one, the references you have on the screen. Matthew 6, 3, Matthew 24, 17 and 18, John 14, 1 and 27, Romans 14, 3 and 16, 1 Corinthians 7, 12 and 13. That's a divorce chapter. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 and 13, as well as 2 Peter 3, 8. And I selected those so that we would have a, a survey of the identical Greek construction that we have in our passage today. In other words, it's, it's a may plus the imperative. It's a third person singular imperative. So it's a little bit uh, of a whosoever generic imperative. And you'll see what I'm talking about here in a moment. So join me. Let's just look at these real quickly. Matthew chapter 6. And verse 3, it says, when you give to the poor, do not let. This is one of these prohibitions, but it's phrased in the third person. It's, it's kind of an, it's an impersonal imperative for general application. When you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Okay, now that's a metaphor, so maybe it's not a fair illustration to start with. But still, does the do not there equal cannot? Would you assume that you can let your right hand know what your left hand is doing? Would you assume that, and, and the principle here being that you want to be uh, circumspect, you want to be private, you don't want to be showing off what you're doing, right? So the whole point of this imperative is to tell somebody to not do something that they're very able to do and might even be quite susceptible to doing. They might be quite interested in doing it, which is why they are commanded to not do it. You know, we tell our children, don't do drugs. Does that imply that they can't do drugs? Well, they're capable, which is why we tell them not to. All right? Still in Matthew, chapter 24. Maybe that one didn't quite grab us because it was a metaphor, but let's go to Matthew 24. Um, there was an idiom. Here in Matthew 24, 17 and 18. Uh, this is uh, the command to flee when you see the abomination of desolation. Jesus said it was future in his day and age, so it was not fulfilled by uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. How about that? Um, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Flee. Whoever is in the housetop must not go down to get the things that are out of his house. Let him not. Let him not. It's just the same as let not man separate. Let not. Let him not go down to get the things that are in his house. Would you, would you dream that he's not able to do that? That he cannot go into his house? No, you wouldn't assume that at all. You'd think that he probably could go into his house, but it'd be stupid if he did. That, that the urgency of fleeing is so fast you don't have time for even the moment. Likewise, in verse 18, whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. He's capable of turning back. And, you know, he, he could make that choice, but if he does, he's, he's an idiot. So, the prohibitions of do not, do not mean cannot. In fact, just the opposite. They, they imply and infer that you can, but we're telling you not to. So, when it says what God has joined together, let not man separate. What does that admit? You and I can destroy a marriage. 
A man can destroy his marriage. A woman can destroy her marriage. Souls are put together in the, the, the mystical unity of, of the amazing thing of, of marriage. But we can destroy that. We're told not to. But we can. Fornication does it. Other things do it. We can destroy that, that unity. Which is ultimately the, the most tragic part of what divorce actually is. All right. John 14. Here's a fun one. Yeah, this would be great if do not means cannot. <laughs> do not let your heart be troubled. Woohoo! My heart can't be troubled. That's not what it says. My heart can be troubled, which is why I'm commanded to not let it. Do not let it. So much of what I love in, the, in this language of do not let, do not allow, in this language of what you, know, you could think of as a they're the third person imperatives, but the idea that uh, if it happens, it's because you let it happen. Why did you let it happen? You were told not to. And don't, don't say, well, I couldn't help it. These imperatives destroy the idea that, oh, well, the devil made you do it. No, 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 you let it happen. Do not let sin reign over your mortal body that you obey its lust. If you presented yourself as a servant for obedience to the Holy Spirit, then you didn't have to. You just let it happen. And you let it happen because you wanted to. That's verse 1, same chapter down in verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. See, in, in none of these would we ever dream that it was an impossibility to, to, uh, to happen. Romans 14. Verse 3 and verse 16. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. It's the same construction. Don't, don't regard with contempt the teetotaler or whoever. Okay? Does that imply that you can't? No, it implies that you can and it's telling you not to do it. And, and the other direction as well, same construction. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. He's not to do it. He's capable of doing it, and he's probably been doing it, so stop. <laughs> right? It's the nature of these prohibitions. Verse 16, Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. And sadly, that's another thing that's capable of being done where we're not to let it happen. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 and 13. To the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Let him not divorce her. That's the command. Don't divorce her. Does that imply that he can't? Oh, it implies that he can, but he's being told not to. Likewise, verse 13, a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Not cannot, must not. Let her not. It's a third person imperative. Negated with the, with a negative particle may. Now, clearly, and we know this from Second Corinthians also, we're not to be unequally yoked. If you marry an unbeliever, you're sinning disobeying scripture out of the will of god and stupid <laughs> okay in that order maybe um but 
show me somebody that hasn't done something stupid or hasn't committed a sin or hasn't done something. So then what's the answer? How do you fix a problem? How do you, how do you uh, remedy a mistake? Do you make a bigger mistake? Does a second mistake invalidate the first mistake? What if you are married to an unbeliever? Is divorce the answer? Go find a believer to get married to? Well, we taught this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, all right, shouldn't be in this situation, but here you are. How do you redeem it? What would God have of you in this circumstance? This unbelieving spouse consents to live with you. Yeah? What's your opportunity then? And also could be, don't get me wrong, maybe, maybe the person wasn't saved before they got married. Okay, Two unbelievers get married. That's great. And then one of them gets saved. Uh-oh. Now what do you got? Well, now you've got the situation that's right here. Now you're unequally yoked. Didn't start out that way, but one of the unbelieving partners, uh, you know, they got saved. And I've known circumstances where that led to divorce because the unbeliever couldn't handle it. Absolutely couldn't handle it. They loved it when they were both unbelievers. And they put up with all kinds of adultery and filth and vile language and, and horrid stuff. Man, that they were married as unbelievers. The man had, oh, I don't even, and I know I exaggerate when I tell stories, but, but this one I think is not an exaggeration. He had four or five or six different affairs in the process of being an unbeliever. And she stuck with him the whole time. Man got saved. She couldn't handle it. Could not abide by his Christianity. And she left him. Yeah. <laughs> There's a story. All right. Finally, Second Peter 3.8. Second Peter 3.8. Do not let this one fact escape your notice. Is it possible for you to overlook something? <laughs> is it possible for you to not pay attention to the fact that God's timetable is not our timetable and His plan is not our plan and His ways are not our ways? We can lose sight of that 20 times a day. So stop it. Quit letting this one fact escape your notice. Keep focused on the fact that His ways are not our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are His ways higher than our ways. His timing is not our timing. His purpose is not our purpose. Do not let this one fact escape your notice. All right, well, there's a sampling. And I think when you see this, there is no place where we would take a prohibition and assume that the prohibition is meaningless because it's impossible for us to do the thing anyway. Okay? But that is at the core what some of the false teaching on divorce has to do when they deny that a divorced situation is, is actually reality. They say, oh, well, you might say you're divorced, but in the eyes of God, you're still married. God has joined you together. No, no, no. You're not still married. If you've destroyed that bond, then you've destroyed that bond. And um, that's the uh, sadness of what we see described here in, in, these, uh, in these passages. All right. On then to point three. The Pharisees objected to Jesus' reference to Genesis uh, by misquoting Deuteronomy. <laughs> All right. They have a yeah, but. And in their yeah, but, they misquote a text. And they were all misquoting the same text. And it may not be a misquote. It could be, I guess, more properly a mis 
interpretation, but they were misusing Deuteronomy. Um, so his conclusion here is uh, Shammai, only fornication, the only reason to divorce. Hillel, any reason, any reason for divorce. Jesus, no reason. No reason. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Which, you know, that lines up with Malachi, right? Malachi, doesn't Yahweh say, I hate divorce? So Jesus says there are no grounds, never divorce. And uh, doesn't choose sides in this thing. In fact, he's so strict that he would uh, offend both groups. Okay? Notice they're not, uh, they're not at odds anymore. Now they're united. saying, yeah, but, 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 but what about Moses? <laughs> okay? Why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? So the Pharisees uh, have a problem with what he said. And even the disciples have a problem with what he said. And we'll get to their reaction uh, probably next week when we look at verse 10. Uh, they think, man, this is, this is a fate worse than death. You're better off just not getting married in the first place. You know, divorce isn't possible ever. Man, you're better off just staying single your whole life. How's that for a testimony to the the attitudinal uh, concept of the of the Pharisees? Of the, not the Pharisees, the disciples. The disciples grew up in this mindset of of uh, quick divorce, easy divorce. All right. Well, the big key here we discussed this before. Why did Moses command? And Moses didn't command. Moses permitted, but Moses never commanded, and that's the point. So Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart. In other words, one of the, the outworkings of the fall and what uh, the realities of marriage after the fall is that souls are damaged in these horrible things and hearts get hardened. Hearts get hardened. Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. From the beginning, before sin, wasn't an issue. But with hardness of heart involved, with a sin variable involved. Remember, the two become one, but how many sin natures does that one have? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And you know, you know how damaging a sin nature is when you have one sin nature in one body. What happens when you've got two sin natures in the one body? Because the two become one. The double sin nature issues. So... Um, it's permitted in the uh, recognition here of the destructive power of sin, the hardened heart that takes place. Now, let me spell this out for you. Subpoint A. Jesus' divorce statement in application of Genesis is even more restrictive than the Shammai position. His first statement that he makes, Jesus makes two divorce statements in this text. His first divorce statement, which is a Genesis application, and it's found here in Matthew 19.6. It's even more restrictive than the Shammai position. He says, no divorce. Let no man separate. Okay. I think it technically means let no man fornicate. <laughs> because it's the fornication that separates the soul unity between the man and the woman. But we'll let that go for the moment. He's even more strict than Shammai. They're, trying, they're thinking... You know, he might choose the strict Shammai position. He might choose the looser nor not so strict uh, Hillel position. And what does he do? He defies them both by going to Genesis and saying, nope, no divorce. 
you know, you might adopt this as a methodology or, or not. It depends on how ornery you are. I might adopt this as a methodology. If, if I know that I'm in the, someone's deliberately setting me up in a thing to pit me between a Calvinist and an Armenian or whatever, I might just say something to upset both groups. Yeah. And then uh, bring it back to Scripture and say, what does the Word of God say? So call me a Calvin Arminian or whatever you want. Blend the two. Um, so his first statement is even more restrictive. Which didn't please the Pharisees at all. Why? Because what were they doing? Point B. The Pharisees took Moses' divorce statement as a command. They have a, yeah, but, yeah, but, Moses commanded. No, he didn't. Have you not read? Back to that insult again. Have you not read? The Pharisees took Moses' divorce statement as a command. And Jesus is very quick to point out here. He says, you know what? This isn't a command. It's permitted, but not ever commanded. You know what? Even if you've got grounds, and there are grounds, but even if you have grounds, legitimate grounds, maybe twice, maybe three times, legitimate grounds, you're not commanded to divorce. You can choose to endure ill treatment. And that's a priestly function for uh, glory of God purposes. All right. Uh, hold your finger there if you like. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 24. Or uh, don't hold your finger. Use a bookmark. Deuteronomy 24. You know, it's kind of interesting, this, the way this comes here. You know, you would think, it just says when a man takes a wife and marries her. And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. Are there any commands in, the, in that? This is just describing activity that's going on. You know, it's like the verses before there. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you know, are you commanded to do that? No, but it's just, you know, when you do, here's, uh, here's what, you're, what you're dealing with. So a man takes a wife. He marries her. It happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her. Doesn't say that's the only reason he would divorce her, but in this case, it, this is why this particular guy is divorcing her. And he writes her certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. Okay? We haven't come to any commands yet. But we have noticed, what have we noticed? Divorce ends the marriage relationship and leaves the parties available for marriage. They're single people again, and she's remarrying. And if the latter husband turns against her, and, and notice that this, the grounds for divorce in verse 3 are different from the grounds of divorce in verse 1. In this case, he just turns against her. And uh, writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house. Or if the latter husband dies, maybe she's widowed the second time around. See, the point being, it's not the remarriage that is, it's not the, the grounds for divorce that's being emphasized in this text. Then her former husband, who sent her away, husband number one, he is not allowed to take her again. This is the only command of the passage. 
And it's not a command, it's a, it's a prohibition. It's a negative command. It's a do not. He is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. The only remarriage that's ever banned is a restoration of a previous marriage. It's the only remarriage that's ever banned in uh, this section of Deuteronomy. He's not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. Abomination is used in a lot of different applications whereby um, God's design for marriage and sexuality is being perverted. So abomination is used in applications of homosexuality, applications of incense, uh, incest, applications of bestiality, uh, all kinds of things. Abomination before the Lord. And wife swapping, <laughs> interchangeable. You marry her for a while, I'll take her back when you're done. That's what God's driving at. Because that's what's attacking the issue of marriage. The, the whole point of what man and woman together are supposed to be portraying in, in imaging God. Remember, man is in the image of God and the woman helps him in that imaging of God. All right. She's been, been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. It actually defiles the real estate. Land becomes defiled through bloodshed and through fornication. Those two things the Scripture says defile a land. And I know our land is defiled. I know the, the ground we walk on is, is very defiled because of what our culture has been doing for the last several generations. All right. So where's the command? <laughs> it doesn't say if she finds no favor in his eyes, he must write her a certificate of divorce and send her away. There's no command there to do that. It is just simply identifying the fact that because of hardness of heart, divorce is happening. And God is overruling the, the finality of what would be the worst case scenario in this is that um, a previous husband takes her back. It's, it's described as being the worst case imaginable. Now, is she free to marry a third guy? Yeah. Even if she's divorced twice, yeah. Even if she's widowed, yep. If she's, uh, that, that story they made up about a woman that was widowed six times or seven times, you know. <laughs> I think it's kind of suspicious, but let's say it happened and she's widowed all those times. Is she free to marry one more time? You bet. Because death ends the marriage bond. Divorce ends the marriage bond. She's not banned from marrying any other person on the planet except a previous husband. And that's the issue here. So, Spelling this out then. Jesus rejected Moses' divorce statement as a command. He says that's not a command. But he described it as a permitted concession. Concession. Paul will use that language too. He says, this I say by way of concession, but not by command. That's what the Lord's doing here. He described it as a permitted concession in a hardness of heart context. So Jesus rejected this as a command. He said, that's not a command. Moses permitted it. Actually, God permitted it. Moses was the tool in uh, composition of the, of the Old Testament. But God permitted divorce. The only requirement he put on it was that, um, that you cannot restore a marriage if there has been another marriage in the meantime. 
It's the only stipulation God puts on divorce in Mosaic law. Permits con- it's a permitted concession in a hardness of heart context. Important notes, three very important notes here. God's word through Moses never commanded divorce. Never commanded divorce. Not God's word through Moses. God's word through Ezra. In the return from captivity, they had a national divorce, uh, mass divorce thing when they came back from the Babylonian captivity, but that's a separate study on its own. And it's one that drives some legalist fits. God's word through Moses never commanded divorce. Secondly, God's word through Moses never prohibited remarriage after divorce. Never prohibited remarriage after divorce. Near as I can tell, this was a, a Roman Catholic invention where they would grant a special dispensation to separate or to divorce, but they refused a remarriage. They refused a remarriage. And so they created a a, uh, a class of believers that were divorced and not eligible for remarriage. And then they had other classes that were divorced and eligible for remarriage. Uh, they, they distinguished it if you were the guilty party or the innocent party in, in being abandoned and things of that nature. And all of this was an artificial construction uh, based on a faulty view of the text. The idea that, well, they're still married in the eyes of God. So they can't remarry. If they do, they're committing adultery. Okay? Which we're going to see that's not the reality. And the uh, the um, statement Paul makes when he says, uh, don't divorce, but if you do divorce, remain unmarried or else be reconciled to your husband. He's simply summarizing Deuteronomy saying, you know what? You have to stay unmarried so that you can be reconciled to your husband. The minute you remarry, You'll, that reconciliation will never happen, cannot happen. So Paul's statement, in 1 Corinthians 7, all it is is a, is, a, is a restatement, is a paraphrase of Deuteronomy 24. It's all Paul's doing there. Then he brings in Jesus' statement and he outlines a few other things. We'll talk about that. Never commanded divorce. Never prohibited remarriage after divorce. See, you want, you want to know what the Bible describes a, a divorced person as? A single person. A divorced person is a single person. That's what the, the scriptures describe a divorced person as. They are unmarried. Whether you're divorced or widowed or never had been married, you are unmarried. God's word through Moses did prohibit. Here's what it did prohibit. This is the one prohibition in the whole text. Reconciliation of a marriage. Once a remarriage took place to someone else. That's what Mosaic law prohibited. Reconciliation of a marriage once a remarriage took place to someone else. You know, I've, I've seen it too. I've counseled divorced people. And where one of the parties didn't want it and was in constant prayer to try to undo it, to try to restore it, to try to remarry the, the person that had abandoned them. And twice I've seen it happen where they, they reconciled and they put their marriage back. They remarried. I conducted one of the remarriage ceremonies once upon a time. But in the two examples, this is two that I've seen work, and how many countless that I've never seen work, but uh, the two marriages that have been restored, a reconciled, broken marriage, both cases, you know why it was possible? 
There was no intervening party. Yeah, not just an intervening legal marriage, but even an intervening um, emotional sexual attachment. There was no adultery involved. There was no fornication. There was no. They hadn't destroyed that through fornication, and so because there had been no third party, they came back together again, and God restored that uh, that soul intimacy. That's what God's word prohibits. And uh, if there is another imperative in verses 1 through 4, then uh, you'll have to show it to me. (laughs) So I don't see it in Hebrew or English or Septuagint Greek or anything else as far as that goes. All right. So what Jesus then does, point D, Jesus expands his first divorce statement with a second divorce statement. He's already said, let no man part asunder. He's already said, don't divorce. But now he goes on in verse 9. See, in verse 6, he's talking about in the beginning, prior to sin in the world. But now they brought up the, the Deuteronomy passage and the Lord says, all right, Moses permitted it because of the hardness of heart. So now he says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for fornication and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus expands his first divorce statement with a second divorce statement. Now, these aren't contradictory. They're complementary. In the ideal condition, no one would ever divorce. And that's the directive will of God. But in, under permissive will, with, with sin in the picture and, and other damage that gets done, well, then it can be permitted. So he expands on it. Subpoint one. Consistent with his previous divorce teaching... Jesus stipulates fornication as a basis for permitted divorce. As a basis for permitted divorce. He said it in Matthew 5. He restates it in Matthew 19. He restates it in Matthew 19. And we taught this back in Matthew 5. We also taught this in 1 Corinthians 7. So, um, I don't think we have to really belabor the issue um, Matthew 5:32. Everyone who divorces his wife except for unchastity and makes her, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So you have except for, except for. And it's interesting in Matthew 5 it's unchastity, and in Matthew 19 it's um, immorality. That chose a different English translation. It's fornication. Okay? That's what it is. In both chapters. So Jesus stipulates fornication as a basis for permitted divorce. Now this is in the Matthew record. Matthew 5, Matthew 19. The Mark account does not have the, the, the exclusion. And the Luke account does not have the exclusion. And so that becomes an argument on the no divorce ever crowd when they basically say Luke and Matthew or Luke and Mark outnumber outvote Matthew and there is no fornication clause because it's not in Mark it's not in Luke and because it's not in those two they pretend that it's not in Matthew either okay well it's in Matthew it's part of the God breathed scripture not only is it in Matthew but it's in Matthew twice Chapter 5 and chapter 19. So you can't ignore it or pretend it's not there. All right. And I think, again, that's uh, what does fornication do? 
What is the connection between fornication and hardness of heart? What is it that a human soul may not be able to overcome? Okay? I don't say cannot, but may not. It may be. A believer with doctrine and grace and love and forgiveness may be able to overcome fornication. May be able to forgive and restore that marriage. May be able to stay married to a spouse that was faithless to them. And, And for the glory of Christ, praise God when that happens. But if not, if if the victim of that is so destroyed because of the betrayal, the expression there in in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 does grant that as one of the valid stipulations for divorce. See, under permissive will. Never commanded, but permitted because of hardness of heart. Secondly, Jesus does nail one particular divorce motivation and really that's what's being said here and everyone doesn't identify with this so let me highlight it for you there's a close linkage between the verbs the real divorce motivation involved here is the one that jesus is flat out saying that's adultery and that's when the other woman is the reason for the divorce let's look at it this is sub point two now Jesus nails one particular divorce motivation, and that's another woman. If you're divorcing so you can marry somebody else, that's adultery. And that's what's being described here. Notice, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman. Those verbs are connected. There's one subject, whoever, and two verbs, and they're connected. So you would say it'd be like uh, Abraham rose up and left. Okay, one subject, two verbs, and those two verbs are connected. Jesus answered and said. Okay, I explained and illustrated. One subject, a couple of verbs, very close proximity, and that's what we have here. So whoever divorces his wife and marries another. And that's precisely how it's phrased in Mark. That's precisely how it's phrased in Luke. And that's exactly how it's phrased in Matthew, except the little exception clause is is injected in there. Whoever divorces his wife, except for fornication, and marries another, commits adultery. The close linkage between the verbs highlights that one was the motivational cause for the other. You know... When you actually look at it here in the in the Greek text, uh, and I say to you, whoever, whosoever, might, doesn't have to, it's a subjunctive mood, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, but whosoever might divorce his woman, his woman. Understand that when you're married, she's yours. And nobody else's. Okay? Or he's yours. Make it gen- we got mostly women here today. Uh, so, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to your spouse. And uh, this woman is your woman. That other woman's not. She's another woman. Okay? So, if you divorce your woman to marry one that's not yours, that's adultery. 
That's adultery. See, is, what, what the Lord's saying is that the, the, the legalities of manipulating the paperwork doesn't make it right. You know, if you, if you decide, oh, I want her, and you go fornicate while you're still married, that's wrong, right? But if you decide, oh, I want her, and you go ahead and issue the certificate of divorce, send her packing, take her, is that any better? Why, why did you divorce this woman? Because you didn't want the label of an of a adulterer? Well, you got it. <laughs> you are an adulterer. Like Jesus said, the minute you started lusting, before you even did the deed, you're an adulterer in your heart. And so here we see the, the close linkage here. If you, what you cannot allow, and this again is what a certain approach to the Scriptures do, um, Oh my goodness, it's 11 o'clock, and I'm in a hurry today, too. I've got an appointment. Um, what this verse does not say is that whoever divorces his wife, for right reasons, wrong reasons, or whatever, stays single 10 years, 20 years, whatever, remarries, <laughs> um, that he's a fornicator because in the eyes of God, he's still married to whoever... She was way back away. That's not what this text is saying. You can't allow for the, the, the passage of time there. This, this is talking about divorcing her so you can marry her. And that's adultery. You allowed your heart to be attracted to someone that was not your spouse while you were supposed to be joined to your wife. All right. The last thing I'll say on this then. Jesus' twin statements. He says, you know, in a perfect world without sin, never divorce. Secondly, well, hardness of heart, fornication, sin, destructions, it's permitted. Jesus' twin statements plus Moses' divorce statement, they form the essence of Paul's synthesis on the subject. And what Paul was doing in 1 Corinthians 7 is he was synthesizing Moses and Jesus together and summarizing it there. Let a man not divorce his wife. But if he does divorce, let him remain unmarried or else be reconciled to his wife. That's what he's saying. He's synthesizing, summarizing. Deuteronomy 24. We'll come back to this next week because I'm out of time. Because we have to then move on to the disciples' reaction. And they were like, oh my goodness. We're better off just not getting married. That sounds horrible. Okay. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for... A design that uh, is wonderful, and that e and uh, provision that's made even with the uh, the ugliness of sin in the picture. Thank you that the ugliness of sin is dealt with through the faithfulness of your Son and the work of atonement that He accomplished on the cross. Father, thank you for guiding us in the truth and for the day by day blessings we have to study a little here, a little there, line upon line, precept upon precept. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.